Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I absolve thee from all thy sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. These are the words that a priest pronounces to the penitent after they make their confession. But this always raises a question. Why does the priest have the ability to make this pronouncement? Who gives him his authority? And to answer, it's important to remember that a priest is a priest because he has been ordained into the high priesthood of our Lord. All priestly authority he possesses is derivative and delegated to him by our Lord himself. So we see when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, that authority explicitly delegated in John chapter 20, verse 23, when our Lord instructs his disciples that whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But this raises a further question. How does our Lord have the ability to forgive sins? And this is what today's gospel lesson begins to answer for us. St. Matthew chapter 9 contains a story that's told in six snapshots or panels. In the first part of the story, we see a lame man brought to Christ. Now in St. Mark's account of the story, his friends brought him, and because they couldn't maneuver him through the vast crowds, they actually took him up to the roof of the building in which Jesus was teaching, and they dug a hole in the ceiling where they lowered him in front of our Lord. Matthew shortens the account, he omits this part, but we still get a sense of the paralytic's desperation. He couldn't come to our Lord without the help of his friends. A good reminder of our dependence and interconnectedness with others. Confronted with the paralytic, our Lord sees the faith of his friends and is moved to speak. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now this may have been surprising because there's nothing in the text that indicates that the friends brought their paralytic friend to Jesus for forgiveness. Rather, they brought him to be healed. So you can see the puzzled looks from the friends and the cripple as Jesus says these words, your sins are forgiven. This didn't work out quite the way they had expected. Now, this isn't to say that healing is unconnected from sin and forgiveness. In the Jewish mind, illness was often viewed as punishment for sin and healing was a breaking of sin's power. And there's a sense in which Christianity embraces something like this. We see sin, sickness, and death as evidence of the fall, all of which have been destroyed by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and will ultimately be defeated when he comes again. But unlike the Jews, we don't draw direct connections from illness to sin. When a person gets sick, we don't accuse them of sinning. Jesus tells us not to do that, in fact. But we do recognize that sickness, generally speaking, is a symptom of the brokenness of our world. Still, you can understand, even with this context, why there might be some confusion amongst the paralytic and his party. 
Your sins are forgiven you. But the text really doesn't allow us very long to focus on what these puzzled reactions may have been like. Because instead, the scene shifts pretty rapidly to focus on the scribes who stand by watching what has happened. And they begin to complain amongst themselves, saying, this man is blaspheming. Their problem is the fact that in the Jewish mind, forgiveness of sins can only be given by God. And they're not incorrect about this. In conveying the forgiveness of sins, our Lord is making an explicit claim to be divine. And so for the Jewish mind, this is blasphemy. Now, the text indicates that this objection is a private one, not public. They don't interrupt. They don't heckle. But Jesus addresses their concern nonetheless by posing them a question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now, the answer that Jesus is looking for here is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because how can you check? What's the way to verify that someone's sins have actually been forgiven? For many of us, we won't know all of that until the final resurrection. But at the same time, if a self-proclaimed miracle worker says to someone, get up and walk, and that lame person can't do it, then it becomes evident that the miracle worker is a fraud. So Jesus decides to answer the Pharisees' objection head on. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then turns to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And the lame man follows through. He picks up his bed and walks under his own power. I like to think he may have skipped and jumped and ran. That he was brought there by his friends who knew his history and that the miracle was performed and verified in the public eye leaves little room for anyone to doubt its authenticity. Further, it's a fulfillment of messianic expectations. As Matthew confirms a couple chapters later in chapter 11, verse 5, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. So in our reading today, Jesus' argument is lesser to greater. He has pronounced the man forgiven of his sins and now heals him as a sign that the forgiveness which Jesus has conveyed to him is, in fact, effectual. The lesson ends not with the stewing of the Pharisees and their seething as to what Jesus has done, but rather with a reaction from the bystanders, the crowds who were watching all of this transpire, and were told that they're afraid. They're afraid because they have seen a sign from God. Now, fear here isn't necessarily a negative thing. It's not bad. It comes with a recognition of how unique our Lord is. He is God in the flesh, God incarnate, the God-man standing there amongst them. And note how Matthew ends the lesson. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. The gospel, according to St. Matthew, is known as the ecclesial gospel, the ecclesial gospel, because much of it heavily revolves around the idea of the church. This has led some scholars to speculate 
that the gospel may have actually functioned as some sort of pastoral manual for new priests and new leaders in the early church. So in many ways, the crowds at the end of the lesson are marveling at Jesus' authority as the God-man to forgive sins. But we can say those crowds marveled then and they continue to marvel that that authority has been delegated to the church by Christ our Lord through apostolic succession and the sacrament of holy orders. So what do we learn from our reading this morning? And I think that there are three major takeaways. First, we learn that the lame man represents each and every one of us who has been wounded by sin. And like any sick person, we cannot heal ourselves of our own power. Only God can remedy our sad and fallen state. But we also see that healing comes to us through the church. And finally, I think we see that healing is not just a one-time event, but is a process that's completed through our participation with God. So the first lesson that our healing cannot come from ourselves, but only through God, is a theme that's emphasized in the collect of the day. O God, for as much as without thee, we are not able to please thee. Mercifully grant that thy Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. The helpless leper, sorry, the helpless paralytic brought to Christ is a mirror in which we see our dependence on him for healing. Without him, we cannot please him. But God makes this healing available to us through means that we can see, touch, feel, taste. In the waters of baptism, the bread and wine which become his body and blood in the Eucharist, in the words pronounced to us by the priest at confession, God knows that we are feeble and fragile. That if it was up to our own imaginations, we would be constantly second-guessing ourselves. I saw this growing up. I have friends who have been baptized three or four times. Well, I really mean it this time. Did I really pray hard enough last time? Did I really mean it enough? Yesterday, I had the privilege of doing a baptism in the chapel, one of Linda's uh, relatives. And uh, the girl was two or three years old. And for the rest of her life, if she ever has a question... Does God love me? Does God really forgive me in spite of all that I've done? She can always look on that day, her passing through baptism, as evidence that, yes, God does in fact love her. He's moved on her in her life. There's no question about it. So these are the ways that God makes it possible for us to be pleasing to him. Because each of the sacraments immerse us into the story of his son and applies the benefits that he won for us in his passion, his death, and his resurrection to us. But we are not entirely passive in this either. Jesus healed the paralytic, and the paralytic had nothing to do with that. He couldn't even go to Jesus on his own. His friends had to bring him. He is completely dependent. On the other hand, when Jesus says, get up and walk, the, the lame man has to actually get up and walk. He could have said, no, thank you. I'm okay. So we who are forgiven of our sins through our baptisms, who have been enlivened by the Holy Spirit through the sacraments, 
must participate with God's saving grace as we live our lives, cooperating with him in our pursuit of holiness. St. Paul speaks of this in the epistle reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. What does that look like? Well, it means that we put away the futility of mind that alienated us from God due to our ignorance and hardness of heart. We put off the old nature and are renewed in the spirit of mind and put on a new nature created after the likeness of God. And that comes with ethical or behavioral implications. It means we put away falsehood and speak the truth. It means we avoid every occasion of sin, even when we're angry. It means we give up theft, escape evil talk, put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, all while embracing kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. What is the foundation for this behavior, for this ethic? The answer, according to St. Paul in Ephesians, is Christ. He says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So our goal as Christians is to take the sacramental grace that we receive here through the various sacraments that we receive. And we're to take that and the drama that we participate in in the liturgy and bring it out into the world with us. As we pray in the prayer of thanksgiving at the daily office, at morning and evening prayer, every day. We pray that we show forth thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to thy service and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all our days. The goal, then, is a beautiful harmony between our liturgical lives, the rituals that we participate in here, and how we manifest that rhythm, that pattern, in our various vocations. Our vocations as sons and daughters, as mothers and fathers, as brothers and sisters, as plumbers, as teachers, as people who are retired. He healed us and made us well. And in response, we ask the Holy Ghost to rule our hearts so that we might live lives that are a pleasing sacrifice to him. And so we can say with the author of Matthew, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.